Rise and shine, Mr. Freeman. Be careful of what you do. Big Brother is watching you. You say that you got me all in the mother. Rather than offer you the illusion of free choice, I will take the liberty of choosing for you. This is the Hurricane Labs InfoSec Podcast, point zero five. the oh, so life really can slap you with consequences episode. I'm Kelsey Clark, your marketing person. I'm Tom Kupchak, and I do things occasionally. I'm Corey Hamm, and I'm a pen tester. I'm Barton Zdlowski, and how's data scientist? So when it comes to the recent breaches going on, we have web.com with their data breach affecting 93,000. The IRS hack is now much worse than initially thought. And the Russians are still hacking everyone, including the Pentagon. But the one major breach that is being talked about a lot right now is the Ashley Madison scandal, which as of recent news, it sounds like there are a lot of government worker subscribers on there which no one's really surprised about that, I'm sure. Yeah, and congressmen and politicians. There was like a White House IT guy or something on there. It's just kind of silly that they would use their government emails. And it's funny how they accessed it from the government domain. They used their government email and they, they went all in. It makes sense. They probably can't use Gmail at work. Well, so that's probably true. Yeah. But why can they use AshleyMadison.com at work? Well, they're the IT guy. They can, you know, just change their themselves yeah. in the firewall. No, actually, you know, I, I'm I'm looking at that from the wrong perspective. It's not the IT department that's probably making that decision. It's probably all the senators and congressmen. They're like, why can't I get to this site? Hey, I'm going to need you to whitelist the uh, Ashley Madison site. I need it for um, committee I'm on. Research purposes. Oh, yeah. The lead author for Gawker, or one of the lead writers was on there, and he's like, right after the data got leaked, he's like, yeah, it was on there for research purposes. <laughs> Everyone believes you. Yeah, that's probably at- more legitimate than the IT or the White House IT guy. Probably. Probably more legitimate than any congressperson, too. Well, and just in case anyone's been living under a rock and hasn't heard about what's going on, the Ashley Madison site is the married dating or, quote, the cheating site. And pretty much hackers have stolen all the sensitive customer information off of it and have made good on their threat to post the data online. And it seems that data scientists are starting to do some interesting things with this. I know Barton has a little bit to say on that. Yeah, so a lot of visualizations start appearing on subreddit data is beautiful. There are websites that allow you to explore the data visually and uh, search it. And so this raises all sorts of ethical issues, of course, whether a breach like that is really okay to analyze. And so it's interesting how people tear into this data without even thinking of the moral implications. So it's illegal to access someone else's data, right? But is it illegal to access it once it's already been accessed? It's interesting that, of course, researchers and Gawker and anyone else immediately tears in just like they tear into all breach data with the Sony breach months ago. It it brings up an interesting cultural thing where it's like if one person posts it online, then it's okay for everyone else to look at it instead of it being, okay, well, every time someone looks at it, isn't that the same crime over and over again right. of, of accessing private data? It's interesting that the hackers release the data on like moral grounds. Mm-hmm. Like what I was confused as to what hackers have against cheating. I'm not really, I guess it's, you know, who knows how many hackers actually were involved in the breach and the release, but it, I guess they probably looked through the data and saw that there are a bunch of Congress people and government emails and politicians right. and celebrities on there. And they felt that they wanted that 
to be public for whatever reasons. So. Well, also initially the attack was portrayed as a retaliation against site's scam policies. So one of the things that the site was doing is asking you to pay $20 to delete your... For a full delete, but it did nothing. Yeah, I saw that. That's so messed up. But it doesn't surprise me at all. Right. And so they were trying to punish the operators of the website by uh, getting them involved in a high-profile data breach. But at the same time, the information that got released already led to a, a few suicides, apparently. This is being really? verified. So, at least uh, two, from what I saw. Right. So what, uh, Glenn Greenwell actually has a great piece... Uh, as uh, he equates this to sort of a scarlet letter situation where people who are involved in, in the breach are marked with a digital sort of scarlet letter. And um, mm. personally, I think that even the anonymized analysis of this data requires consent. And so uh, there are certain standards in the industry as to what type of data is okay to analyze. And um, of course, information wants to be free and all that. But at the same time, there are real threats to real people who are not necessarily even involved in cheating, per of se. Of course. And, and of course, you can never really expect sites like Gawker or National Enquirer or any, you could call them B-grade news sites, to you know refrain from exposing private information wherever they can. I mean, that's essentially how they're in business is because they'll run stories that no one else will run. But it definitely leads to an interesting conversation about what's okay to access, what's okay to analyze. I mean, you, you mentioned anonymized data. For those that don't know, what exactly would that be? So whenever the data set is approached by data scientists, they try to protect the identities of people by stripping this personally identifiable information from, from the data set. And they do that to more or less successful uh, extent. Uh, sometimes they don't do such a great job of it. But in general, the what is being looked at is aggregate, data in aggregate, which uh, does not reveal anything about individuals in the data set. So it's just saying person email number one had this many dollars spent this many times they visited the site. It takes out all their names and addresses and all that stuff. Exactly. But also at the same time, a lot of that information can be used even without the personal name or social security number. It can be used to sort of correlate with other data sets and find find out who these people are. And okay. similar to how you would track a browser, if you uh, do not look at necessarily the IP address, but you look at a combination of cookies and certain JavaScript DOM elements. Okay. What is the point of analyzing this data and what what is the data scientists expect to get out of it? Well, as any research, this uh, can show interesting patterns in social sort of behavior. For example, marriage cheating in general. It also could be used to profit from specific instances like clusters of cheating where, let's say you're operating a private investigator business and you're trying to mm, find a place. Okay place to work. So, any so it just gets jammed into a generic legal database that someone has. Of course, if you're a PI and you work, you know, in any popular area that has internet access, then you probably have people who are your clients and who could also be using this site and you could use that as evidence. Yes, yes, that, that, that is exactly that, that. And so the question is to which extent the data does get anonymized. And it, even if it is perfectly anonymized, is it still okay to do it? Of course, it's a, at that stage, it might be a victimless crime, but you never know how the data is going to be used. And th this yeah. sort of, I'd like to sort of segue into the idea that the data shouldn't have been stored in an unencrypted format in general. And of uh, course, all that breach stuff is always there. I mean, the circumstances leading up to the breach, we haven't even discussed how they actually got breached. And I honestly don't know how they actually got breached. 
impeached. The one thing I was reading specified that there is definitely evidence they had way more control than just the website itself. Like servers, like internal servers? Like access to the whole parent company, basically. So maybe an insider or maybe a client machine or something? Who knows? Eh, not necessarily. It could just be any kind of security missteps. Oh. Who knows? But they basically had the source code to the site. Well, that makes <laughs> it a lot easier to exploit it. They have the PHP web config and the server config. and the, yeah. The hackers claim that it was... Uh, an undetectable undetectable attack and it was not difficult. They must not have been using like they work They work hard to make it undetectable and then they didn't have to really do anything to make it undetectable because there was nothing to detect them. Here's some more information that isn't surprising at all. Along with the paid delete doesn't actually do anything, 34% of all the accounts were fake, which isn't surprising at all. What, on Ashley Madison? Yes. Oh, of course. There was 1,400 government users for the USA. There was 900 from Brazil, and it goes on down the list. Once again, it, that brings up the ethical issue that people who were there, especially I know the female accounts, were mostly fake. So, yeah. So it, there were very few female accounts. Yeah. So, so the best we can say is that being on that side indicates intent. And even in that case, research could be a valid reason. Of course, when a politician is claiming to be researching their opposition using a government-issued account, that is a little suspicious. The other thing is, is there could have been <laughs> political enemies, too, that created an account using their email address. Exactly. You can, you can use any email address. To, as far as I know, there was no verification involved in the registration process. So, so the only people, the people who use their government emails are just basically blatantly disregarding any discretion, essentially. They're not trying to hide it. They're just saying, no one will ever know that I'm using this site to try to cheat. So, you know, let's just say historically, let's just say that Bill Clinton, you know, someone didn't like Bill Clinton and they wanted to create an account for him. They could have done, you know, bill.clinton at whitehouse.gov. Yeah as the email address, and it would look like, hey, Bill Clinton has one of those accounts. But who paid it? Because I think most of the people that were confirmed as having government emails also paid using that same name you know, on the credit card. Just use some random PayPal account. It's no, okay. it, it, it's a credit <laughs> card, though. Yeah, the, I mean, I didn't look at the data myself, yeah. but I am assuming that confirmed government accounts are paid. I don't know. I'm making assumptions as to how they determined that the accounts were real or fake. I'm assuming the way that they determined that they're fake is either an invalid email using some kind of email verification technique or the accounts were never paid or they were paid using some kind of a prepaid card. Well, and depending on how much it costs, I mean, it might be worth it to even just pay the... I mean, I'm sure it's not overwhelmingly expensive. I heard it I was. Really? Okay. Well, I'm I'll, not sure. My only <laughs> my only context is the guy from that HGTV show, it's like 19 Kids and Counting or whatever. He was on there, of course. He had spent over $1,000 on the site over the course of like three years. So it's not cheap. I mean, I don't know mm. what he was doing. I like how the suggestion of what to do as details of the hack emerge is to find a good divorce lawyer and or marriage counselor. <laughs> See, that's so good thing. luck. Okay, so <laughs> let's say, and this is just theoretical, let's say that someone had hired a private investigator or was in divorce court and one of the partners is claiming that the other one cheated and that's why they want all the money or the kids or whatever they want. Could this be used as legitimate evidence in a court of law or is it ill-obtained? Most likely it's inadmissible. It's probably ill-obtained. Uh, similar to how wiretap has to be authorized prior to being uh, used in, in the court of law. So basically, it's used for nothing official, but off the books, it's like you were on the site. And that's a strong indication. Cheating. Yep. So look out for the spam and other stuff that's going along with that now. Last note, there was over 300 IBM employees on the site. Over 300. They were the biggest company that had users. HP had 160. Cisco had 92. Apple had 63. Probably no one at Amazon because they didn't have any time for... <laughs> no, no one on Amazon. You're right. <laughs> 
All right, let's move on because there's a lot of big questions and misconceptions that are floating around the InfoSec world these days. And something that I was reading about recently was it's called the Willie Sutton theory of cybersecurity. Basically, the Willie Sutton theory of cybersecurity is based around the notorious U.S. bank robber, Willie Sutton, who when asked why he robbed banks, he said because that's where the money is. And so basically, the theory stresses the need to focus on the question that, you know, if vaults are deep within the building protecting banks from bank robbers, why do so many security professionals focus so much attention on their data center's front door? And so I'm just posing the question, do you think too much effort is being focused around the perimeter as opposed to the internal infrastructure when it comes to security? I think in a lot of cases, once someone gets into a company, the internal controls are a lot of times more limited than you'd like to see. In a lot of cases, a typical attack approach, and Corey, you can kind of agree or disagree, I guess. Yeah, you can help me if I'm wrong. Uh, But a lot of times when you're trying to break into something, you're either going to go for your low-hanging fruit, such as a vulnerable application or something like that, or more often than not, you're going to try a phishing or targeted attack, social engineering towards an end user. Once you get to that end user's machine, you can either find a way to get a backdoor installed or some way to maintain access into their environment and then use that to try to pivot into some other systems and eventually get to where you want to go. Yeah, in a typical breach scenario, and I mean, disclaimer, we don't do a lot of breaches here at Hurricane. We typically do just straight up normal pen tests. But um, in the case of a, we have done breach tests before. And but the techniques are similar. You you essentially go, you go for the easiest thing you can go for. Your first goal is to get an IP somewhere, and it doesn't matter where. That's the first goal. Then from there, you're right. You move and you look for other things. And you're right that because you're getting an IP, you're also likely getting domain credentials. And when you get domain credentials, you have to see what they can get to. So after the first line of defense, which you could argue is like the doors if you're talking about a bank. Like after you walk through the doors you're in, then you have to look for what kind of access controls they have. If it's a bank where there's nothing at all, no barriers preventing you from walking in the front door and walking all the way back to the vault, then that's going to be a really easy bank to rob. But if there's a lot of internal access controls within the bank or within the network, same thing. Like if they don't allow access, they don't have a generic SMB share that everyone can access or something like that. Or if they have many, many SMB shares, most of which are non-sensitive data or mounted on non-server devices or something like that so that they're less accessible. And I think in a broader sense, Sutton's law is essentially that you should focus on the obvious that you should focus on the most obvious thing first. And I think that does apply to networks, but not so much to this whole idea that securing the perimeter is overrated. And even along those lines, right now, attackers and the cyber criminals, they're going for places that have sources of information that can be used to make money. Or just anyone they can find, really. But a lot of the the goal of the cyber crime industry, I guess, so to speak, is to try to make a lot of money without a lot of consequences. Yeah, you and also at, not a lot of time investment. Oh, yeah. You, you look at Target, Home Depot, those were great examples where huge amounts of money was taken. And the, the product that was kind of obtained as a result of this breach was not necessarily, they weren't going out and just using the credit card numbers. They were selling them so that other people could do that and like kind of separating the crime from the people who are actually 
committing the crime as time went on. But that was a pretty big payout for them just to have that information, and they didn't actually have to do any work other than the initial attack. So they weren't jeopardizing, you know, going out to the streets with a stolen right. credit card and buying, you know, Yeah, once stuff they at, get all the credit cards, they can release them or sell them slowly over time. Yeah, and in the case of the Target one, they had so many, they, was just, they could give a separate credit card to everyone, and they'd still have plenty left over. Yeah, I think that now it's almost elevating into almost like control and subjugation. Like, a lot of these companies, Ashley Madison, and especially when it comes to, like, hacktivism and motivated attackers who are have a reason, they want to take control and they want to blackmail or influence the company that they're trying to control to their will or to disable them entirely. If you look at Ashley Madison, I presume they didn't sell any of the data. So I, I guess they were just trying to say, look, there's a shady website. We don't like people. Them. People who are interested in having an affair were also considering these services. Yeah, it's like you, maybe you can mine their data. Like maybe you can sell their data to some shady ad company. But you can add ads to the visualization sites. So if there is a site that explores this data, which will obviously drive traffic a lot, you can have ads from Google on the side. Let's see that the sites that publish the data are not the sites, the people that are attacking. Right. The the sites that publish the data are just free, they're just beneficiaries without, they don't actually have to do any work. All they do is just download the file and then profit. But the people who attacked them, what was their goal? Other than to alert the public as to the tragedy of cheating. I mean, what what was the point? What were they looking In terms of like Ashley Madison, that site, their business model is pretty much shot. So their existence and sustainability is probably just not existent at this point. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder if you can go and register. <laughs> like, I wonder if you could, like, I wonder if when you sign up, it still says like secure and safe. Like, Well, they've, they've probably had uh, more interest in their site in recent yeah, weeks. Yeah, more hits, but yeah. in the bad way. <laughs> no, if I search Ashley Madison on Google, it's an ad at the top of Google right now. All right. And well, followed, by all the nu- followed by all the news articles. But What about the people who don't pay attention to the news? I mean... I mean, they would have to be pretty blind because, like, there's... <laughs> the next thing are six links for hack. Well, go to Yahoo, People though. don't that's read. Google. Oh, I gotta check Yahoo? Try it on Yahoo. Because that's what... Dear. You know, people that cheat probably use Yahoo. <laughs> there's an ad at the top of... Uh, actually, on Yahoo, there's an ad, and then there's a link to the website, and then the Wikipedia article, and then <laughs> another link to... okay. So my oh, point and is, then Ashley Madison with a RN instead of an M. Okay, my point has been proven. So, <laughs> if you're if you do not use a good search engine, if you use Yahoo, you don't know about the Ashley Madison hack. The other thing is, in this case versus Target, we talked about this on one of the earlier. Podcasts. Bing, did you mean Ashley Furniture? No, <laughs> <laughs> that's enough. So. <laughs> We talked about this on one of the old podcasts, but it's essentially Target pays no... I mean, they might get fined. They might be not PCI compliant or whatever. And they have to dump a bunch of money into PR and other firefighting operations around their company. But really, what is the downside to them? People aren't going to stop going to Target and swiping their cards just because they got breached. Or the people that are are very few. You know, it's like, yeah, they got breached, but... I need this reasonably priced rug at this time, so I don't care. And I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I've gone to Target after they got breached. I've also gone to Home Depot after they got breached. And I guess if it shuts down the business entirely, then no one cares. It, unless, you... unless it goes all the way to shut it down. Anyway, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> mm. <laughs> no. So back to the question that I was trying to ask before we went on that awesome tangent. We should be prioritizing the strength of security, correct? Yes. No, security is irrelevant. I do think that Great. in that Sutton in that <laughs> Sutton's article, 
there was an interesting point that as we move to more cloud-oriented architectures and more distributed environments with APIs, we definitely find it harder to secure the perimeter. So that's basically what the article is talking about is that you can't rely on, oh, well, everything's behind our corporate firewall. How could anything possibly get through? When you're running in AWS and you have public-facing APIs and all your apps are really good and restful and they, they talk to each other using really low bandwidth data transfers and all that stuff, it becomes a lot harder to say, oh, well, everything is behind this one firewall. And that's what the article goes into is essentially you should have zero access policies by default so that if you have a public facing API and it go, it uses an API to talk to another app that the front end and back end of that app are only allowed to talk to each other and no one else. Or, you know, if you have a database, that database is only allowed to talk to that the app that it that uses it. Or if you have multiple databases, they're segregated because your perimeter in a distributed environment, especially in a cloud environment, is much wider. So you have way more doors to secure. You have too many security guards and too many doors to possibly have them all. That's up. almost an extension of a blog post I wrote a couple months back talking about any time that there's a remote office or another internet connection, it's another source of access. And there's the idea, like if you have a remote office with a larger block of IPs, you can have IT people on site, for example, connecting some other device to the internet directly, bypassing your corporate firewall, and then they can use that machine to get in. Yeah. And I've seen cases where that happens, and the cloud's no different. Yeah, and when you're talking about securing clients, that's that's tough, but it's even tougher when you're talking about securing servers that have to be also providing useful service to people and, and, and to the right people. So if you have a public-facing API, that's really great for your app and for your users. But if you can't really restrict your API to only certain IPs because the app has to be usable from anywhere. So you have to secure what that app can talk to and how it can talk to them. And I think that it also goes deeper when you're talking about, I guess you could refer to it as internal APIs. So if you have an internal service that you have that you use an API for, you want to be able to access it from quote unquote anywhere within your company, but not anywhere from the internet. And that's where it becomes tougher because someone's coded up an API, they want it to be super convenient, but you got to think twice about how convenient it is for someone who's not even supposed to be using it at all. And it's just that just goes back to the convenience versus security ar- argument that always happens. Yeah, but it's it's much easier to say, oh well, everyone's here at corporate, so there's no complexity there. It's just internal IPs are good and external IPs are bad. If you have an internal service that runs on an external IP, then it gets a lot more complicated, mm-hmm. and that's that's becoming increasingly more common. I think the article is definitely worth considering. And of course, all that stuff applies, whether it's new fangled cloud architecture, whether it's just good old architecture, even on internal network, everyone behind your corporate firewall, it's still good to not allow people to access things they don't need to access. And I liked the end point of the article that at the end of the day, catching bank robbers is far less valuable than preventing them. So defense in depth and being able to prevent, that's the way to go. Tom, do you recall what the blog post was? It's uh, Watch Your Back Doors. It's from December. Okay, perfect. So we'll show that in the show notes. So anyway, the next question that I have is how much threat intelligence is too much? Because it seems like one side of the thought process in the security industry is that if you add more threat intelligence, the better you'll be able to protect your organization. And the other side feels that all the data that is or could be combed through isn't actionable or intelligent for whatever reason. And I'm just wondering what the opinion is on that when it comes to the amount 
of threat intelligence. I'll let either Barton or Tom answer this because I don't I don't know much about threat intelligence. Like with so any, you lack intelligence? Is that what you're trying I need to more say? Intelligence. <laughs> so like with any sort of intelligence, it comes down to sort of cost-benefit analysis. You're trying to see with limited resources of an analyst how much you can devote to just automating things, automating insight into threat intelligence. At the same time, the whole purpose of doing intelligence is to be able to provide analysts with only the most relevant information in your security infrastructure. And so to the extent that that is happening, I don't think there can be too much threat intelligence. Of course, you can always have more intelligence to see how well your intelligence is doing. So, <laughs> sure. But um, yes, at the same time, simply collecting uh, metrics that do not represent any um, specific threats to the organization can be distracting. So, so you're saying the ability to be able to put context to the data is very important. Exactly. Context and um, also to, to provide as many tools as possible to capture the process of the analyst in them and automate certain tasks that we manual. And this is what we do with Splunk. We try to provide searches that are things that any reasonable person would look at first. And from there, we extract the pieces that are, that are the most relevant in the context of the entire sort of threat perimeter. And that is a good thing. At the same time, it's becoming more of a fad. And so a lot of people are misapplying these notions. They are trying to gather data that is not necessarily uh, pertinent to the attacks that are being faced by the organization. And they simply add to the things that the analyst has to look at without adding to the benefits of, sure. of looking at them. So sure. do, you, do you think it's better to filter your intelligence feed, so to speak, to filter that before it gets to you? Or do you think it's better to search through it in a more relevant way? Uh, well, we're always dealing with limited attention spans, limited ability to process information. So um, I think the drill down approach where you start with a high level picture of your organization and threats that are being faced in aggregate. And then as you need more detail, you can dig in deeper and sort of remove filters from your search and start seeing more data coming in until you actually say, yes, this is specific enough. I can have some, something I can do about it. So can you give an example of how threat intelligence goes with something like, for example, Shellshock? So Shellshock is the classic example that everyone knows of an exploit or a bug that had seemingly high severity, but also very limited attack surface as far as most companies weren't running CGI pages in Bash. And most companies didn't have any app at all that piped anything into Bash or allowed any input into Bash. And so it was never exploitable for most companies. And yet, I don't know the statistics, but I would guess that most people had patched it pretty quick because it seemed really scary. When you say drill down, how specific are you getting? Are you talking about one server? Or are you talking about all your servers that have Bash? Exactly, yeah, this is a great example because as you said, this is a very specific vulnerability. And so this, to be able to understand whether the vulnerability applies to begin with, you need to have a lot of data that you gather from endpoint security perspective. You need to see which versions of Bash are being used or if they're being used at all. And you need to be able to correlate that data with the actual threats that are there. So this is an example of where being specific helps. Simply saying your system may be vulnerable to this, go in and check it out, could result in a lot of false positives. And of course, false positives are better than false negatives in this industry, but at the same time, it distracts the analyst from potentially more important and active threats within the company. So 
specificity here allows you to say, yes, this is an actual vulnerability, which comes from vulnerability feeds, special software you can be using like Qualys, and um, only escalated at the point where there is certainty as to the version numbers. And So even in that case, even if you can confirm, yes, you're, this machine is running a vulnerable version of Bash, mm-hmm. do you think that warrants elevation, or do you think that it should only be elevated if it not only does it is it running a vulnerable version, but it's also exposed. In the article, the author talks about how there's three conditions for escalation or three conditions for why you should care. And one of them is it's essentially exploitability and exposure and, you know, the verification. That, Absolutely. So do you think it should be escalated even though it's not? If, if it wasn't exposed, say it's someone's personal machine that's running Bash, and yes, it's a vulnerable version. It depends. Of course, everything is within the network topology that you have, and so that's why the concept of security domains is important. You have to see uh, which parts of your organization are exposed to and to which extent. So Plung does that as well, so it's, it's possible to perform uh, matching on uh, uh, subnets uh, of your devices. It's possible to encode the intelligence about your network into the system you're using to, to track your threats. And so once again, more intelligence here is better. If your system understands to a degree how your network is laid out, it knows better whether something is a threat or it isn't. So you're saying like, if it's exposed, maybe do it the first day. And then if it's not exposed, maybe do it the next day. Exactly. Exactly. So their top priority, if you have data on, it's a web server, it has CGI, it's running bash, and it's exposed let's patch it now versus the endpoints. Those aren't exposed, so we can patch them later, but they're still vulnerable. Absolutely. And finding different ways of quantify that risk is also important uh, to be able to say this is more important than this, but this will become important once you resolve the other issue. Because if you're used to seeing all 10 level severities or 100 severity, whatever the highest severity is, then when the real kicker comes out and it's exposed and it's vulnerable and all that stuff, all the preconditions have been met, then maybe if it's not played up with a fancy website, then no no one pays attention. And yeah. that's that's when the breach is really, I mean, that's when you're really putting your organization at risk. Exactly. And, and, and seeing that in advance is very important. That's why it's important to have that information in your system. Some things occurring in tandem, different types of vulnerabilities at the same time are also uh, indicators of... Finished. We're going to take a pause to... We had turned on the uh, toaster oven to warm up the podcast room, and it just told us it was done warming up the podcast room. And yes, we use the toaster oven as a space heater, okay? <laughs> so, okay, one more thing I want to ask, and then I'll stop asking questions. So in the article, again, he mentions that there's no such thing as an intelligent data feed or as a smart data feed. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that notion or do you disagree? Ultimately, yes. The searches we write, they do not approach the point of sentience. So we d- you do need an analyst at the end of your uh, threat intelligence pipeline. It's just that how much information you expose the analyst to can be very important as to what your response, how effective your response can be in principle. So it, it, it is intelligent in the source that we are automating certain things that the analyst does, but we will never at the end of the day be able to match sort of the experience and perspective breadth of knowledge that analysis brings to the table. That's why that human element is still required. But you want to spend that human element as resourcefully as you can because that's the most limited element. Yes. It's easy to buy more CPUs or whatever, hard drives, but it's more difficult to buy someone who's smart and actually knows what they're doing. Exactly. And I think that's a good point. I mean, you- that just goes to show that something like Splunk, you can't just have it be out of the box going and, and running and doing all the intelligence. 
analysis that's required for it. That's so. definitely true with almost any security tool. Sure. ID, IDS is the same way. If you just download Snort and set it up and don't configure your rules, it's just going to annoy you and you're going to turn it off because it isn't going to be useful. It's going to say, oh, you're downloading all this malware. Well, you're going to say, I'm not downloading malware. and Or maybe I am and I want to be downloading malware. Whatever it is, you still have to tune it to your environment. And, and that's it's tough. It, it takes a lot of work. And I'm sure setting up Splunk is really tough. I've only used Splunk to uh, exploit Python before because it's really good at that. Yes. But uh, yeah, I'm sure it's great for data aggregation. Absolutely. Too. And and tuning actually ter- ends up being probably the most involved part of the process that, uh, you know, making sure that the infrastructure we're trying to apply it to does not alert on something like a new server being added to the network, which is a planned scheduled thing, but at the same time does not warrant an alert. Definitely. And I think that that's definitely where it's tough. It's really hard in an organization to tell the difference between someone plugging into your network that's not supposed to be there and someone that just plugs in your network and is supposed to be going to a meeting and needs internet at that very moment. Yes. And and also the broader you try to make your reach, sort of the less specific your searches become, the more difficult it is to say, is it a real thing or not? And in fact, certain searches don't really look at anything specific that we write. They just sort of do a broad overview of the, of the spectrum. And there, the tuning is more than half the work. And especially when, if you don't tune it right, and there's an incident, and you go back and look at the data, and there isn't sufficient data to be able to trace the incident or to find the root cause, then you're you're up to your neck at that point. That That's when your organization says, like, that's the point at which the CTO or the CSO or whatever C-level executive scares you the most comes into your, <laughs> into your office and says, why? And then you have to answer, and that's the tough part. Right. Just a quick, I mean, a quick plug for Splunk, you know, it's it's great to drill down into the details, but also give a holistic view and visibility of across your network. It's a great tool for, um, again, helping the analyst. I Splunk myself. I have all my home network set up and to dump crap into Splunk, and I have no idea what to do with it, but it seems really cool. See, that's where a lot of people start with Splunk. It seems really cool. And then you get Barton, <laughs> and he makes Splunk actually useful and awesome. Right. A lot of people keep forgetting that their logs are there and that this is a valuable source of sort of intel as to what's happening in your infrastructure. With the way the logs were being used for a long time, we might as well be dumping them to DevNull because no one is ever looking at them. Yes. Sure. <laughs> and if you can't get to them, again, if you can't find them with the search, then yeah, they might as well be in DevNull. Exactly. Anyway, let's talk about 15-year-olds getting convicted of swatting. That's yeah, <laughs> I had to throw this in here. It's a little miscellaneous, but it's appropriate for the episode title. I was reading through the news recently and it caught wind of this article that was talking about the FBI catching this kid who made the statement that you can't catch a hacker. He wasn't a hacker. Well, whatever. Whatever he was messing around with, he was being stupid for saying that and then getting caught for whatever he was doing. Oh, without a doubt, he was stupid. And this is the second conviction, at least that I'm aware of. There was one in Canada as well, where it's essentially some kid gets angry at someone else and decides to use swatting, which is essentially you call the SWAT team wherever that person lives and say, or you call the police essentially and create a false hostage situation or a some situation that the SWAT team would need to enter the building. And then the SWAT team forcefully enters the person's home, thus traumatizing them and possibly subjecting them to, you know, whatever the 
SWAT team does. Obviously, on the SWAT team side, they have no idea whether it's... In this specific article, the police said, we knew it was probably fake. We knew it was probably just a false threat, but we still had to comply because how dumb would it be if we thought, oh, this is a false threat, so we'll just ignore it. And then it was a real threat and people died. That would be horrible. So it's an easy position of power for that 15-year-old because no one's going to ignore a bomb threat, no matter how fake it seems. They have to comply with it because that's the only option. Essentially, he just got caught because he used his email for his Twitter. He didn't use any proxies at all, essentially. And he just accessed his email from the email account he used to set up his Twitter was the same email that he just logged into from his home network. So he was essentially just logging into Twitter from his home network. And since he was using Twitter to harass people, they were just got a subpoena and traced him back. And then the cyber police and the state police sicked him and uh, now he's in jail. These are like 1990s cyber crimes. I mean... Except Twitter didn't exist in 1990. Not really 1990, just the Wait, classic... Wait, the internet was barely a thing. The classic sorry. harassment. It, there's I nothing, feel ashamed that they called it hacking in that news article. There's, oh, journalists. There's nothing in there that even makes that other than the fact like, that it's someone hack? being a stupid. Phone? He dialed a phone. How is that hacking? We should have harsher consequences for things like this. I mean, what did he get, 15 <laughs> years or something? I don't know. I just feel like there should be harsher consequences for people who do bad things. <laughs> he, he got, no, he was well, not the opinion he, of he, Hurricane Labs. He's he 15. Should have the, he should Let, have the SWAT team beat him. Th- that, <laughs> that's a that, little... <laughs> that is really a bigger <laughs> penalty kidding. than, like, the people who were involved in the target attack. And what did he do? He posted some things on Twitter. No, I mean, he... Okay, you could argue that the Twitter people caused people harm, but he caused people extreme distress. If you've ever been threatened, you know why we have a law against against threatening people. But it's a lot more complicated when you're looking at illegally accessing computers and crimes are much more fuzzy and gray. At the same time, the more of our lives are embedded in networks and sort of uh, the digital domain... uh, the more is at stake. For cyberbullying or other... People have been convicted of of threatening and cyberbullying. I mean, you're right that as we live more of our lives on the internet, internet crimes are becoming more like real crimes. It's actually a more permanent form of that. In a lot of cases, the laws don't reflect that. Yeah. What would amount to, you know, just graffiti now becomes a felony. The laws aren't in touch with these new domains. They are not exerting the correct penalties, but at the same time, because they're so effective at this, the results are subpar. So I think what we're saying is, what are we saying? Never mind. Crime, what we're cr- saying crime is, doesn't pay. What we're saying is the 15-year-old that threatens people online and and calls bomb threats is always going to get convicted of a crime. It's just what crime is it going to be convicted of? <laughs> I, th- I think the more time we spent on this, it's a very new sort of uh, medium, relatively in historic terms. We will develop more modes of interaction that are going to be codified as laws as time goes on and people have been convicted of hacking i mean look at mitnick he that was a long long time ago and there's still no law in the books that really makes sense coming next year congress considers a dial-up plan free mitnick yeah i mean what mitnick did or what other cyber criminals have done it's essentially up to the judge who happens to be sitting there at his trial that there's no precedent there's no law right and and people making these laws if they're dumb enough to use their government issued email addresses on ashley madison websites what hope is there of them understanding the ramifications of all these things Hmm. well we have a weak excellent point point. so basically people may be smart but that doesn't mean they still can't get copy and stupid and like no, maybe sure no, but sometimes there are consequences See, the, the what premise, do you not the pre- agree well, you're saying <laughs> you're saying people are smart 
And okay, well, I don't know. No, I don't think I don't he was smart at all. Are... I don't think that kid was smart. I think he was dumb. I think the tr- <laughs> he's I, a moron. <laughs> how, what do you mean people are smart? I think it should be. Let me rephrase. Life may be short, but sometimes there are consequences. The end. I, I don't think there's sometimes. This, <laughs> that doesn't even make there's sense. always consequences. Why does something okay. being short mean there aren't consequences? Because the Ashley Madison tagline is life is short so have an affair so i'm trying to wrap this up but you're not (laughs) i get it see what you did there that's actually pretty good thank you kelsey i'm i'm used to having explain jokes all the time so it's okay i get it so okay yeah i get it life is short but the cyber police will find you (laughs) all right thanks for listening in everyone and we'll see you next time Bye. bye bye